Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Dante's Old South. My name is Clifford Brooks, the poet behind such books as The Draw Broken Eyes and Worldly Metaphysics, Exiles of Eden, and Athena Departs. And tonight we have an extraordinary lineup of musicians, poets, and prose writers, the likes of which I've never seen on this show. The wide-ranging talent tonight will tap dance on new sounds, prose that becomes very close to poetry, and then poets who marry words into melody. So to keep us on track and keep your hearts beating, let's move forward. And up first in the hot seat is Mr. Kodak Harrison. He is a true legend in poetry and songwriting as well as performing. He has been a mastermind behind the Java Monkey reading series and his new book, The Turtle and the Moon, is something to truly stand up and clap for. How are you doing tonight, Kodak? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. It's good to have you, brother. Now, we'll jump in with both feet and let me ask you, about the turtle in the moon, what inspired you to write it? And um, what did you bring to the forefront of your mind when you sat down with your pen to put it on paper? Well, I've always wanted to have something out. I've written tons of lyrics, songs, and then poetry also, and some spoken word pieces, etc. So I tried to do something pretty comprehensive. I also included some photographs of some of my abstract painting in there. And then Poetry Atlanta Press offered to put it out, so uh, I said, great. <laughs> and the saga continues. Now, you're just not a poet. Um, you're also a songwriter. Tell us a little about your astounding career. <laughs> I laugh just because astounding career uh, sounds kind of humorous to me. My astounding career started as a songwriter, and critics back in the 80s, uh, I've been around for a while, started calling me a poet, and I was like, I resisted that. I said, no, I'm a songwriter. I'm not a poet. Uh, but they kept coming up in reviews, and finally I accepted the label and then started doing poetry readings around town in Atlanta. I did one at the Margaret Mitchell House. I did one at a bar down in East Atlanta. And these were all monthlies in different situations that were semi-successful. And then uh, in Decatur at Java Monkey, I started one that's been going on 17 years now, every Sunday night, extremely successful. And we've had uh, featured poets from all over the world, literally, born in 19 different countries from every continent except for Antarctica. I talked to some of the uh, penguins down at the, went to the aquarium here in Chattanooga today, and there's some penguins down there, but I couldn't get one lined up. But anyway... Uh, so we've been doing that. So between the spoken word and the poetry uh, that I've been involved in, I've also been involved at, as chairman of the community board of Poetry Atlanta for like 12 years. And then I've worked at Poetry at Tech, my old alma mater, for a number of years, as well as playing music all over this country and in Europe. As a musician, what are some of your favorite music venues in which you performed? Of course, I've performed all over uh, favorite ones. I've got a couple of little uh, uh, dive bars that I always loved. Kind of home base in Decatur was the Trackside Tavern. Uh, that's one of the first places the Indigo Girls, and that's where Eddie of Eddie's Attic started before he moved over to Eddie's Attic. There's a little place called where Leon Redbone and R.E.M. used to hang out down in Savannah called 
uh, Jim Collins. I love that little place. So I like these funky little places, but I've played bigger venues also. And then also in Europe, mainly in, uh, I guess my favorite gig of all time was in Prague at the Prague International Jazz Festival back in 94, not 94, 2004. And uh, there's a couple of places in Germany that I've played on every tour. I've been over there on eight tours. So there's a little place called the Wegwarte in Lucklum, and then another place called Cafe Eusebia in uh, Braunschweig that are favorites of mine. And then I love, I used to love to go up the East Coast up to Boston. Uh, there's a little folk club, there's a famous folk club called Passims in Harvard Square. In fact, I was playing with a saxophone player who also played with Jimmy Buffett for 15 years. And uh, they were on break, and I met her up there, and we played Passims. And Jimmy Buffett told uh, Amy Lee, uh, the saxophone player, oh, yeah, I played there once. In fact, I opened for Bonnie Raitt there. So the, those are some of the places. And the very first place I had to play, I have to mention that one, uh, my first professional gig where they actually paid you other than for tips or something was in a place called East of Eden in Salinas, California. Of course, I'm a huge John Steinbeck fan, and East of Eden was one of his books, and he was from uh, Salinas, California, where the place is located, and that was where I had my first professional gigs. I, I looked at that as an omen. This is a question that may make your skin bristle or not, but um, I have to ask it. What's, what's the difference between songwriting and writing a poem? Well, poems, hopefully, are, are poetry. Uh, songs are not necessarily poetry. Some of them can be. Obviously, some songwriters, Dylan, you know, Leonard Cohen, uh, Springsteen, uh, Tom Waits, are very poetic. And the major difference is songwriting uses repetition more than, than poetry does. In other words, choruses repeat and also uses rhyme and rhythm a little bit more than modern poetry does. But sometimes there's very little difference, if any difference at all. I mean, listen to a Leonard Cohen piece, and you're not sure uh, whether you want to call it poetry or song. And for people to come and hear how you've married these two, what are some of your upcoming events into October and ahead? Uh, <laughs> I was going to plug my reading at Georgia Tech, but uh, they've, they're going through transition uh, since Thomas Lux died, and they've got a newborn chair, and they're not exactly sure how the new— uh, Born Chair is going to move forward with things, so I'm not sure if I'm going to be doing the reading there on November 1st or not. I'm planning a big celebration next spring on my birthday because I'll be 70 years old. You know, I used to lie about my age and that kind of stuff, but I've given up on that. <laughs> so that I'm lo really looking forward to that and uh, just some other things uh, around town involved in music and poetry. All right. Now, before we move into your reading, tell us where we can find The Turtle in the Moon and the anthology that's out now uh, from your Java Monkey series, Java Monkey Speaks. You can find those on, on uh, Amazon. And of course, you can go to the uh, Poetry Atlanta Press website and get whatever you want of those two books. And there's also a uh, audio version of my book that you can find from Senate Records, which is a company out of Macon that you can find that on CD Baby as long as, as well as my CDs. I think I've had uh, 18 different uh, recordings released, 12 studio albums, and the other six are live and or compilations uh, over the years. Some of them are vinyl, and some of the early CDs are not in print anymore, but if you look around, you can dig them up. All right. Now, before we have one of your songs on the radio, 
How about you read us a few of your poems? Okay, I'd be glad to do that. I call my music Beatnik Blues because I've been labeled as a beat poet at times, and it's blues bass, but it's not pure blues by any means. So these two pieces I'm going to read kind of fit that category. The first one is called Static on the Radio. This is the title track of my first CD that came out back in 91. Static on the Radio. People didn't want to hear anything they hadn't heard. Too busy talking to anybody around that pretended to listen. And it sounded like static on the radio. Static on the radio. Now I'm walking down this city street looking for a place to go. Some place where I can forget this empty feeling down inside. Because, you know, they got everything inside these city walls except room to dream. No room to dream. But I'm trying to take a new stand because it didn't work out quite like I planned. The stage got old and the songs got cold. But I didn't have to, don't have to be told. I didn't have to, don't have to be told. The poet's words are muffled in the rain while his footsteps echo in the night. In the distance, a lonesome saxophone wails and a single tear rolls down her cheek. Me, I'm in this late-night dive trying to fill that empty spot. So sit down, we'll talk a while, talk a while, talk a while, share the time. If there's any left over, we'll listen to that guy up there singing the blues. Because it sounds like static on the radio. Static on the radio. Static on the radio. I chose that one because we're on the radio here. <laughs> uh, and then I was mentioning tours of Europe, so I'm going to do one that I wrote uh, about when I first went to Europe back in 1999 uh, when there was a little thing going on down in Kosovo. And uh, we were traveling from France over into Germany, and I couldn't read the newspapers, but I could. I uh, saw the front pages. This is called The Language of the Blues. I am an American outside of Berlin. I sing and play my guitar. The audience applauds. The language is the blues. Everyone understands. While just a couple of days drive south, the campaign has started. The bombs are falling on the front page. You can see it in the photographs, in the eyes of the refugees. It's a language everybody understands. The hopelessness, the fear, the terror, the anger, the constant tension. The language of the blues for those who've lost more than they had to lose. I try to understand why a man hates another man. He doesn't even know. The roots of hatred run deep. We have to stop the hate. Only love kills hate. Tough love, the language of the blues. Kodak, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. Certainly my pleasure. And y'all, look, get out there and find The Turtle in the Moon and the anthology Java Monkey Speaks on Amazon. You will not regret it. And before we move on to the next contestant on Dante's Old South, we'll let you listen to Run, Rudy, Run by Kodak Harrison. strong and free and determined to stay that way. We heard the howling hounds of conformity, and we vowed to keep those dogs at bay. We knew if we should ever fall 
Pizza, those hounds would tear us apart. Deny they ever known us. Feast on our hearts. And next in the hot seat is novelist T.M. Brown. How you doing, brother? Uh, real good, Cliff. Glad to be here. Tell us about your book, Sanctuary. Where did its roots come from, and what inspired you to put it on paper? Wow. Um, well, I would tell you this. Um, in real simple terms, I give my wife and my grandkids all the credit. My wife one day reminded me of all the academic and theological writings that I did. She said one day, you know, these grandkids of yours are never going to read one stitch of this. And I said, well, what do you want me to write? She said, they'll read a story. So I said, okay, give me the seed of a story. And she did. And then 
four years later, I created and released what's called Sanctuary, A Legacy of Memories, which is the first of three books. The second one just came out this past year called Testament, An Unexpected Return. When you sat down to write, what were some of the the nuggets of wisdom you learned that you wish you'd been told before you began to write that you'd like others to know? That's a, that's, a, that's a really good point because Sanctuary to me was a way that I could write a story that would be interesting uh, and entertaining for not only my grandkids, obviously, but to a broad audience that they could engage in. But yet they're going to walk away thinking about these tidbits that I was raised with from my grandfather giving me wisdom on, on a Saturday afternoon or my dad when we went fishing on, you know, when I was younger. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, my grandkids just don't have the same benefit of some of that wisdom. So uh, inside the story is some, you know, some commentary about choices have com- consequences and different things and uh, from that side of things. All right. Now, you've recently joined the Southern Collective Experience. What do you see in it that you enjoy that drew you to it? And uh, what would you like to add to it in the future? Oh, wow. The best thing I can tell you is this. The Southern Collective Experience actually espouses things that I've been looking for. To be able to mingle and listen to some creative minds that not only just write, you know, great books or, you know, novels and stories, but they, they write poetry that makes you stop and think. Um, that brings out the Southern flavor to experience a songwriter who not only has the poetry of the lyrics, but also the, 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 the emotion of the song as he's singing. Um, to me, that draw, I, that's what it is to be in the South. Yeah. Now, I mean, in, with your own flavor of writing, what do, you, what do you hope to add to the collective as it moves forward? Something that, I, that happened to me while I was writing, because I was transforming myself into becoming a novelist and going into the dialogue and wanting to create a story that was authentic and believable, as I was going through that process, all of a sudden memories of my days being raised in the South came back. Memories that I had uh, long stored away in the back of my mind, all of a sudden recalled stories about my grandfather and my father's upbringing. Um, and I, to be able to make that connection to the South and to the country side of things uh, was one of the things that really motivated me to continue writing. Outstanding, man. And to get a hold of your books, where do we find them online and how do we find you on social media? Well, I would tell you this. First of all, to find the, the best starting point is to go to tmbrownauthor.com. There you can find out a lot about me. You can find a lot about, uh, there's the actual bookstore tab. You can go there. And when you hit the different links, either you can buy through my website or you can go to my publisher, which is Palmetto Publishing Group out of Charleston, South Carolina, palmettopublishinggroup.com. But you can also go to Amazon. Uh, they definitely there. You can go to Barnes & Noble online and order them there as well. They're available in Kindle and in paper. And, oh, let me, let me not forget, or I'm going to get shot. Any independent bookstore in all of the wonderful towns throughout the South. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a loyal fan of the Southern uh, Independent uh, Booksellers Alliance, uh, and I love all of the independents and had a wonderful experience just today at Starline Books right here in Chattanooga. And Miss Star is just tremendous. 
And to add a little bit more flavor to that, um, you and I are reading for a star at Starline Books on Thursday, the um, October 25th at 6.30, correct? No, that's correct. I'm, I'm, I'm so anxious about that. You, you just don't know. I'm biting at the bit to be able to be shoulder to shoulder with Cliff Brooks, with his wit and his, and his poetry, and then me sitting there trying to keep up with him while I'm doing my little uh, two cents from my book. Your humility betrays you. Now, let's show people just how false that is and have you read some of that stuff and how magnificent it is on the page. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give a small taste to the, to the folks out there. We'll read a couple of pages just as it gets started. And you'll have to do the rest because we'll be here until t next week if we keep reading this. Chapter 1. Until three years ago, the Adams County Courthouse proudly stood since the Civil War as the landmark in Shiloh. After the powers-to-be transferred the county seat to Alexandria during the Depression, the majestic edifice underwent renovation to appease the folks in Shiloh and became the town's city hall. The elegant lady wore her nostalgic brick and stone exterior well, but the makeover had been superficial. Questions had lingered since city officials reported the fire as accidental, cause unknown. A prolonged Indian summer gripped Georgia. Though already the first Sunday of November, hot and humid weather more suitable for early September caused sweat to trickle unabated down my neck, dampening the collar of the, the fresh cotton polo I had just yanked over my head. The moving truck had pulled away while Liddy patiently watched from her passenger window. I walked up the sidewalk one last time locked the front door of the colonial brick suburban house we had called home for the past seven years. I jumped into the driver's seat, buckled up, squeezed the hand of my wife of 40 years, and then reached for the gear shift. Any regrets? Liddy raised her window and turned her gaze straight ahead as a silly smirk appeared. No, let's roll. We've got a moving truck to meet in Shiloh tomorrow. My foot slid from the brake to the accelerator and our expedition jolted forward with the packed trailer in tow. Liddy stared straight ahead for the first few minutes. She caressed the manila envelope stuffed with photos, brochures, and paperwork about the house we contracted to purchase for our retirement, but soon dozed off after we turned onto U.S. Highway 19. I settled in for a long afternoon drive to our destination an hour below Albany. The all-too-familiar gated communities and shopping centers under Atlantis' ever-present shadow faded in my rearview mirror. I snapped a farewell salute as we passed Cornerstone Publishing, where I served as chief publishing editor until one week ago. The historic highway narrowed as the scenic panorama of autumn colors revealed more and more farms, fields, and forests along the landmark route. Liddy stirred just long enough to adjust her position and place a small pillow between her head and the window. Glancing at her as she fell back to sleep jogged my memory of the first day my eyes fell upon her on the Athens campus 40 years ago. My smile over the memory faded when I glanced at the stranger in the rearview mirror. Gray had infiltrated my dirty blonde hair and crow's feet pointed to sagging eyelids. After an extended sigh, I reminded myself that I no longer was that spirited undergrad Liddy first met, but a second glance at Liddy returned a grin to my wrinkled face. When Liddy first suggested I consider early retirement, I turned a deaf ear. 
Undeterred, she persisted. Theo, Theo Phillips, it's high time you realize that you can afford to do what you've always wanted. Walk away from that job you've grown to resent and invest the time to write your own stories as you've always envisioned. Once my hard head embraced the, the idea, Liddy wasted little time. She arranged the sale of our home, scoured a mountain of listings, made countless phone calls, and endured long day trips. While I fulfilled my promise to my boss and worked until the end of October. Liddy strutted about the day our home landed an eager buyer. And the following evening methodically spread a collection of photos on the kitchen table of a picturesque historic home located in a South Georgia town aptly named Shiloh. Not far from our childhood hometowns, the pictures brought back fond memories for both of us. We both felt God had answered our prayers when a day later we received an acceptance of our cash offer. On the outskirts of Albany, Liddy stirred and wiped her eyes as the late afternoon sunlight glistened between the treetops. She cleared her throat and lowered her sunglasses from the top of her head. Surveying the passing scenery, she asked with a drawn-out sigh, Where are we? I pointed to a well-timed road sign. Albany's 30 more miles. Reckon we'll arrive in Shiloh a little before six. The news earned a smile as she stared back out the window. Liddy soon turned and with a curious grin. What were you thinking about while I was asleep? Without losing my focus on the road, I said, how lucky I was to have stolen the heart of the prettiest girl that ever graced Athens campus. Liddy giggled, I feel the same about you. We soon turned onto the Flint River Highway, the homestretch leg of our journey. The amber glow grew darker as the sun disappeared below the distant treetops. Liddy bit her lower lip and clenched my hand. Do you think we did right? I mean, buying this house and leaving Peachtree? <laughs> A chuckle erupted first. Hun, I have no doubt that the vetting process you orchestrated selecting this house removed any reservations I might have clung on to about my retirement or our decision to pack up and move to Shiloh. Her cheeks glowed, me neither, but I wanted to be certain you weren't just trying to appease me. I'm truly looking forward to sinking deep roots and making a slew of friends. My wink brought a smile to Liddy's relieved lower lip. You're right, she said. But how well do you think we'll fit in? Trust me, a town like Shiloh won't allow us to remain anonymous long. And I'll kind of leave that for the readers because from there they're going to find out they don't stay anonymous for long. And there's a lot waiting for their arrival. Because small town... Anywhere ain't gonna let you be anonymous, will it? No, no. You, you you're gonna be greeted as a friend the minute you walk in. It's whether you stay a friend or not is what you find out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Y'all to get a better taste, a fuller feel for this man's work. Come and listen to him read from Sanctuary, maybe a little bit more from his other work on Thursday, October twenty fifth at six thirty with Starline Books, where I Clipper Brooks will read some of my poetry and maybe a little bit of music will be in between us. We'll focus on discussion and some Q&A on Southern literature with both prose and poetry and what makes them so unique. Tim Brown, thank you. Thank you, Cliff. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Right. And next we'll hear a song from the band Radio Lucent, from my girl Carolyn Wilding Kelso called All I Want. Hey, Prunabe, if you hear 
And here we have Jared Dwayne, poet, brother in the Southern Collective Experience, and an enigmatic young man that I still can't put a bead on. How you doing, Jared? Doing well. How are I, you? Man, I cannot complain. <laughs> How's life treating you? Pretty well. 
just living it to the fullest. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to hear. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you came from, what you're doing, where you're headed. Well, I grew up as a farm boy, came from Fort Payne, Alabama. Lived 20, 21 years there on a farm and got somewhat miserable and decided to make a life change. I've always loved words, yet I was late to appreciate them. I'd already finished a associate's business degree by the time I really fell in love. So I was out of my college experience, but I delved off on my own, found what I could find. Who are some of the poets that move you most right now? Right now, I'd have to say E.E. E. Cummins. I'm stuck on him. Who Just... couldn't be? Who couldn't be? Butt <laughs> yeah. of the bud, man. Butt exactly. of the bud. Exactly. As a member of the Southern Collective Experience, um, what drew you to it, and uh, what do you hope to add to it? Well, frankly, you drew me to it. I found You're you. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> Once I found you and you enlightened me upon it, I was blown away, actually, that there was even something that existed like this, just the companion and brothership of it. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, well, while I may be lacking education, I think I can add a true, genuine voice, Southern voice to it. And I think you bring up an interesting point that I don't think we've, I've ever stood upon, and it's not to derail against it, but people... Um, not just you. I mean, I think um, as a society, especially in America, not hating on America, but um, we tend to think that book learning has something to do with the knowledge of, of melody and, and words. And have you found that when you tried to find it in the classroom, it was too constricting? That yes. When you yes. got out on your own, you could kind of say, what do I like? Why do I like it? And reflect back on it. Exactly. I've, everything in the classroom is stifling to big open mind thinkers and it's it's hard to find any heart in it and once you get off on your own you get to enjoy and research exactly what you want and none of it or well 95 percent of it is not in a textbook so it's 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 eye-opening so the idea of the when people say from the school of life there's more than a little bit of merit to that isn't it yes you let your heart guide you you'll you'll have your mind blown we'll blow our minds with some of your poetry Jared. This first one I'm going to read, I wrote it when I was on my way back from Colorado in an 89 F-150. Nostalgia rushed through me. My clothes are dirty. My conscience is bleached from a lifelong journey whose end is never reached. From the moment entered, been trying to escape the expectations rendered from any sort of state. I'm born to roam, but willing to face turns that were wrong along the road life takes. And so I go on living, I go on learning, yet I'm not adhering, only yearning. Thank God for the road. It'll marry you to the blues. The road is my reverend gives direction to your shoes. Ooh. All right. I don't want to stop with that one, man. <laughs> give us give us one more on that train to happiness. The glint of what she has that isn't held holds my guess, plants a seed in my head. As it blooms into wonder, this bohemian goddess 
of happenstance loveliness waters its already drunken roots. This particular delta queen, with thumb and eyes of a genuine growing green, is actualized only by heartbeat. The essence she exalts has existed since the first sunrise and will remain when the setting stops a reminder to let romance guide your eyes. All right, y'all, whether Jared Dwayne knows it or not, you will be reading these poems in the October issue of the Blue Mountain Review, which is published by the Southern Collective Experience. It can be found on our website by the same name, www.southerncollectiveexperience.com. Jared Dwayne, people can find you at open mics between Alabama and probably Chattanooga, Tennessee at some time in the foreseeable future, correct? That is correct. Tremont Tavern always has one on Tuesdays. And Marks and Ben Brewing Company as well. Love it, love it, man. Thank you so much for being a part of today's show. Thank you, Cliff. Up next, we have Mr. Stephen Wynnum, who, with his Zen Buddhist kind of calm, can make a chaotic man like me feel like I am being really obnoxious every time I open my mouth without him saying a word. It's amazing how he works his magic. And recently, I found out that he's an essayist and a passionate lover of music. And I want him to share a little bit of both here on the show. Stephen, how are you doing? Pretty good. Give us a little bit of background on yourself and where you came from and where you're going. Well, I grew up in Alabama and moved to Georgia in 1983 to Athens and then to Atlanta around in 1985 and been living in Atlanta ever since. So about half my life in Alabama, about half of it in Georgia. Now, as you've traveled around the South and, and got your feet in music, you're a big fan of vinyl, correct? Correct. What is it about vinyl that draws you to that, that, that medium? Mainly just the, the physicality of it. There's just something not fun about handling it. There's a, a ritualistic aspect of playing a, a vinyl record. You have to put it on the turntable, put the needle in a certain place. All of those things are, are just you know, fun to do, even though they take a little more time and effort. And then the I'm at the age where reading tiny little CD uh, booklets or or print off of a you know website even can be difficult. So having having a, a large format uh, with nice artwork and liner notes that you can actually read is also a plus. But it's just it was the format I grew up with, and you know so I'm kind of attached to it. Right on, man. It's, what is it about music that, that drew you to sit down and start writing essays? And you've also written a, a poem, correct, that's coming out in a book that has the same to do with the topic? Tell us about that. Right. So, uh, well, I've always loved music, uh, as we'll hear in a minute, uh, ever since I was a child. And, yeah, I try uh, every now and then I'll find uh, something about a song or an artist that uh, inspires me. And uh, so I'll, I'll write uh, usually poetry. I'm only now starting to write essays but it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. In fact, the essay that I'm going to read about Aretha Franklin had been kind of percolating in my mind for years maybe. And, and when I heard that she was ill and near death, I thought, you know, it's time to write this. So I just sat down and, and put it together. But yeah, I've also written poetry about music, um, a poem that I have about Robert Johnson and a companion of his named Johnny Shines, was published in a literary journal called Press back in 1999. And um, recently I got an email from a guy in England who 
uh, teaches in a university there, and one of his colleagues who was putting together a book about how to write about music had found this poem and included it as the final chapter um, or the discussion of my poem as the final chapter in his book. And so that book is coming out in the fall sometime. Uh, it's going to be published in England, so it's uh, probably way more expensive than anyone here would be willing to spend, uh, certainly just to read my poem. But um, if you've got a library and you want to, universities out there, if you want a, a good book about music, uh, you can maybe pick this up. But What's it called? What's the book called? The book is called Stories We Could Tell, Putting Words to American Popular Music, and it was written by David Sanjek, S-A-N-J-E-K. It's being published posthumously. He died a couple of years ago, and some of his colleagues got together and finished the book and, and are putting it out. And uh, not to put a fine point on it, but to, to kind of extrapolate further from death, um, the recent passing of Aretha Franklin, had you finished your essay before her passing, or was her passing kind of the catalyst to finish it? It was the catalyst for, uh, yeah, for writing it, uh, and, and I wrote it in the days leading up to her death and then finished it in you know, a week or so after, afterwards. But like I said, I've been thinking about this episode that the essay talks about for many years, and so it was sort of kind of already there in my head, and I just had to, to get it written down. Amen. And as we lay her body to rest, but never her memory, let's move on to that essay, brother. Okay. Uh, the essay is called Aretha Franklin's Chain of Fools, My Mother and Me. In November 1967, my family moved from Axis, so named, I assume, because it was the middle around which nowhere revolved, on the edge of the Mobile Tensaw River Delta of Alabama, the Jasper in the state's northwest, where the last ripples of the Appalachian Mountains fade. I was 10 years old, and this would be our fifth move since my birth. That same month, Aretha Franklin's single Chain of Fools was, was released. My father had started a new job as the manager of a sawmill in Double Springs, 25 miles north of Jasper. Because Double Springs was a tiny town without much to offer, he decided we would live in Jasper, a larger town with a good school system and amenities like a public library and a movie theater. He had gone to Jasper ahead of us to find a house to rent and drove from there to Double Springs every day for work. After the moving truck was packed and on its way, my mother loaded me and my younger brother and sister into our Buick Wildcat and started the drive north to our new home. The interstate between Mobile and Birmingham was not yet complete, so we took U.S. Highway 43, which ran past our front yard, to Northport, where we would pick up State Highway 69 to Jasper. It was a long drive. At about the halfway point, we came to the town of Demopolis, where two roadside diners competed on opposite sides of the highway. We stopped at the one on the northbound side. It was the kind of place you might see in an old Twilight Zone episode, or in a film noir in which someone on the lamb stops in for a furtive cup of coffee and a slice of pie. Like all diners at that time, it featured a jukebox stocked with the day's hits and also-rans offering one play for a dime, three for a quarter. To hear a song played on a machine of real sonic strength, 
as opposed to my tinny record player or a Buick's single dash-mounted speaker, was to feel the music in your chest. For me, that was always the best thing about eating out. After finishing my lunch, which was almost certainly a grilled cheese sandwich, french fries, and a Coke, I asked my mother for a quarter, and she took one from her purse, which always smelled of leather, viceroy cigarettes, and lifesaver peppermints. I dropped the coin into the slot, punched in the numbers for my three songs, and stood there waiting impatiently for my set to begin. Mom was in no hurry. This indulgence afforded her time for a Viceroy and one more cup of coffee. I don't know why Chain of Fools was one of the songs I picked that day. I must have heard it on the radio at some point that November and liked it. I don't remember either of the other two songs I chose. Chain of Fools was written by Don Covey and picked for Aretha Franklin to record by Jerry Wexler, head of Atlantic Records. The musicians for the session included the Muscle Shoals rhythm section, Spencer Oldham on electric piano, Jimmy Johnson guitar, Roger Hawkins drums, and Tommy Cogbill bass, as well as Joe South on guitar, Franklin on piano, and the Sweet Inspirations, which included two of Franklin's sisters providing backing vocals. The song is in a minor mode and was, uses only one chord throughout. It's one of the few hit songs to be based on a single minor chord. The song opens with a tremulous riff played by South, reminiscent of the sound of Pop Staples' guitar on the classic Staples Singers records. Maybe it's the sound of a shaking chain that South is trying to evoke as the sweet inspirations come in with chain, chain, chain. The full band launches in on the third chain, already driving, propelling the beat. Then that voice. For five long years, I thought you were my man. We're in blues territory here. You treated me mean, uh-oh, you treated me cruel. She claims to be weak, with a weakness that gives her lover and tormentor strength. But the voice's power belies her claim. Her father, her doctor, and even her lover tell her to leave him alone, but she rejects their advice. His loving is much too strong, and she chooses to be added to his chain of fools. After the bridge, which is carried by the voices accompanied only by hand claps, Franklin sings, One of these mornings, the blues trope for coming to oneself and moving on with a new day. Roger Hawkins' symbol shimmers. Though the chain will break someday, it will be on her terms when she is ready. But up until then, I'm going to take all I can take. That's what I hear 50 years later. What the child standing enraptured before the jukebox understood, I can't say. My guess is that all I grasped was the pure sensation of the pulsing beat, the unmodulated drive of the melody, and the force of the singing. But that was enough. When the song ended, I returned to our table. I expected that my mother would announce that it was time to get back on the road. Our unknowable future in a new place awaited. Instead, she asked me the title of the last song and who sang it. This was unusual for my mother, who had never displayed much interest in music, especially not the music I listened to. I told her and she dug into her purse again, fishing out a dime. That's a good song, she said. 
pressing the coin into the palm of my outstretched hand like a priest offering the host to a communicant. You can play it again if you want. And I did. Stephen Wyndham is being one of your friends yet again. I'm sat in quiet awe, and there's not many people that do that to me. That's good work, brother. That's good work. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a part of this show, man. It's been a pleasure. And to round out this episode of Dante's Old South with some soul and a voice somehow more melodic than mine, we have Mr. D.L. Yancey II. How you doing, boss? Doing well, man. It's a pleasure to, to be back. Yeah, man. It's, it's never boring to have you here. And before, it was, I was always sweaty and chaotic. Nobody knew what was going on. And somehow you would show up as if God had said, please calm this fool down. <laughs> and there you were. There you were each and every time, man. How is life treating you? Man, you know, uh, life has been good. And, uh, and ironically, I'm, I'm actually promoting an album coming out soon called Life is Love. So... Tell us about it. Keep going. Keep going. So um, it's a it's a ten track album, and it and it kind of goes from a theme of being in love to going through a breakup and to finding that there's other things in life to fall in love with. So that's kind of the myriad and the flow of the album. And uh, so you asked, and I was like, wow, yeah, life has been pretty pretty much love for me here lately. <laughs> right. I, I mean, what what you know, is, I know that you know you got to have you have a fantastic family. You got you know you have a, a career that spans. The, I I didn't know until recently about you know the football that you had in your past. I want people to know DL after this show. Tell us all the love that you brought from your life, your history, where you came from, where you're going, and how it fits into this album. Gotcha. Yeah, so yeah, I, I went to University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and uh, played football varsity. Uh, lettered there for five years as a walk-on running back. Wound up getting a scholarship. Had a daughter my sophomore year. Majored in uh, engineering. Had high hopes of going to the NFL. Got really close, but didn't quite make it. And came to a period in life to where I was like, all right, what am I going to do with myself? Um, so uh, I've decided to go to my second love, second passion, which was music, other than football. And I taught myself how to play the guitar. And, and since then, 10 years later, man, I have a beautiful wife. I've got four children. You know, career in engineering is going well. Got a chance to run into this this genius right here, <laughs> Mr. Clifford, to do some things, right? I mean, just things have been just falling in place. Um, well, well, well better than uh, I could ever imagine a plan for myself. So the album's kind of reflection of how, you know, you can have a plan for yourself and then sometimes, you know, God can have a better plan for you. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when you realize the plan that you're living is better than the plan that you probably imagined. Right. Yeah, life's, life's love. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And again, it comes full circle. It's, it's all in that album, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's all on the album, man. Absolutely. Now, um, as I mentioned before on the show, there's an upcoming uh, reading event and some music at Starline Books on Thursday, October 25th at 6.30. And am I to understand that you're going to be a part of that? Yeah, yeah. We'll come by and uh, play some tunes, um, bring my acoustic guitar and, and uh, microphone, and yeah, we'll, we'll play, some, play some songs. I'm looking forward to it. Now, to, to come around, I, just, I want people to understand that the breadth of what you're getting into even if the book is not ready to roll, the, the, the idea, I want people to know about it, the, the children's book that you have in your mind that you and I talked about earlier, where's that at and how are you thinking about it? Yes, yeah, so um, the first book is written. Um, I have a great foreword by a great person. <laughs> throw, that, throw that plug out there. Uh, <laughs> but um, the, the goal of the book is to be able to promote uh, science, technology, engineering, art, and math to, to the youth. 
So uh, the goal is to it's for like really really young ages, uh, early reading years, have you know full of bright pictures and stuff that reflect you know modern technology. Uh, but the book is going to be poem based. So you know I was a Dr. Seuss fan growing up, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of like having that idea of bringing that back, but using it using poetry to be able to promote the science and the technology, engineering, arts, and math. Because people say often, like, well, you can either do pretty words or you can do math, but if you can do music, you're doing math, you know, and you you marry that around with your books and with your life in general, don't you? That's right. That's right. Um, Even with, like, we have a rehearsal later on, and we're going over a song that we never played before as a band. So uh, we're going to be talking, we're going to be talking number system, what key you're in, Play the one, play the the three or four, you know. So it's like math just uh it's surrounded in everything that we do and and uh a lot of kids I talk to, especially in, you know, the African American community, they say math's tough, math's hard. And I'm like, No, it's not. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just, you know, so it's uh being able to show how uh, you know, math is involved in everything we do to kinda help pull out that creative side that's inside of us all. Right on. And bring some of that math and passion and poetry to the forefront of what we're doing right here. What song are you going to do for us and lay it down for us? So um, I'll do a song called um, Ship of Salvation. Um, it's a song that uh, I wrote a little while ago. One of the first songs I wrote when uh, playing the guitar. And um, it's kind of almost, like you said, that that peace in the storm type of vibe, type mm-hmm. of feel. Right? So All right. we'll play that, Ship of Salvation. Please do. Tides of life got you sinking low, and it's drifting from a peaceful shore. And the waves getting higher and higher, and it feels like you're gonna drown. But oh, there's a ship that's loading every day to save you before the tides take you away. So get on board. The ship of salvation. So get on board. No need in missing the ship of salvation. Living life is like swimming in the ocean against the waves and the current. All the problems you're facing on a daily daily basis but oh that's a ship that's loading every day to save you before the tides take you away so get on board the ship of salvation just get on board no need in mission the ship of salvation what a waste of filing And the water is freezing cold It gets lonely living in darkness You can't make it on your own So get on board Get on board Get on board Get on board 
the ship of salvation. DL, you make life melodic and real, man. Man, I appreciate it, brother. DL Yancey the second, y'all. God bless you. Thank you for coming on. Likewise, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank each and every one of you for giving me, Clifford Brooks, and my bound band of rowdy heroes the time of day. I want to thank WUTC and NPR for having us on and appeasing my need to get literature on the air. And to bounce off of Stephen Wynnum's idea and love of vinyl, I want to close down tonight's show with a poem of mine called Resurgence from my first book of poetry, The Draw Broken Eyes and Worldly Metaphysics, now out in its second edition through Kudzu Leaf Press. If you visit their website by the same name, you'll also find my other two books, Athena Departs and Exiles of Eden. Resurgence. Taking turns to dig ancients out, Hank Mobley records get shuffled with Kerouac's drunken haikus and Nat King Cole's Route 66. Discolored cardboard, unsellable a decade ago, now redeems itself. Real dervishes keep a table spinning to dance while they decide Ray LaMontagne sounds like a thoughtful winter. Y'all, thank you so much, and God bless.